So if I mention the, the name, the book of Revelation to you, I imagine a, a bunch of different uh, thoughts may come up. Not sure if you grew up with that book in your tradition, but maybe the first thing that comes up is something like uh, the terrible nightmare art of, of Hieronymus Bosch. Garden, so-called garden of earthly delights. That's the not delightful part of it. Or maybe what comes up for you is something a little bit more comic book-like, a little bit more horror evil of the 1980s variety, like Iron Maiden. (laughs) 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 Now, uh, metal is not one of my primary musical idioms, but I got to tell you, the kitsch and camp value alone, because I think this is uh, an ad for a concert for Iron Maiden and Kiss, I would go see that as a child of the 80s. 666, the number of the beast, you know, if you remember those times. Uh, by the way, quick quiz. Um, in Iron Maiden's concerts, there is a figure, kind of that figure at the top, the scary looking guy. Any idea what his name is? The quickness with which both of you mention that to me lets me know that after the service you will let me know why Eddie is called Eddie, because I don't know that. I just know he's called Eddie. (laughs) I was a punk guy too, yeah, not a metal guy. Maybe what comes up for you with the title of the book of Revelation is maybe someone like this guy, Jack Van (laughs) Impey. Some of you know Jack Van Impey, gracing basic cable for the last 30 years, letting us know the signs every single Sunday night that the world is really now coming to an end. He's looking forward to it. (laughs) And maybe, when I mention the book of Revelation, a different image comes up. Tom Hanks, 1993, accepting the award for Best Oscar for his portrayal of a man, a lawyer here in Philadelphia with AIDS, eventually dying of the disease, and his acceptance speech, in which he spoke very powerfully, very movingly, of his drama teachers, two of them specifically, who had died of the disease, and many, many more countless people who he did not name speaking of how now they were held in a divine embrace that cools their fevers and clears their skin and allows their eyes to see the truth of an all-embracing equality which holds every single person. Because these are actually the words I'm going to read you right now from the book of Revelation in the Christian Scriptures. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a beautiful image of intimacy, regardless of whether you think it's metaphysics or metaphor. Because the truth is, the book of Revelation has a really bad pop culture sense to it. <laughs> Left Behind series, the worst theology in the world. And when I say worse, like, not just that it's hostile to Unitarian Universalism or progressive spirituality, it's bad biblical theology as well, too. 
beyond the literalism and the looking for signs that this generation is the last generation to ever be a generation upon this earth, beyond the overwrought symbolism of the book of Revelation, the time in which the book of Revelation was written was a time of great chaos and great pain. In the centuries after Jesus' time, when Rome was really putting its heel down onto the people of ancient Israel. Eventually that ended in the end of ancient Israel, in the diaspora, the exile of the Israelite people. It was a time of chaos and pain. And here's the thing, if you were writing scriptures as part of an oppressed minority at that time, you couldn't come out and say, Rome sucks. (laughs) You had to invent a whole kind of mythology that hoped there would be an overturning of history, that there would be a recognition of people who had suffered deeply, and that their suffering, their sorrow, that injustice would be seen, and the sufferers would be comforted. Couldn't speak that truth directly, but you could hold that hope in your heart. And beyond everything else in the book of Revelation, which I don't read all that often, to be honest with you, it is a hopeful book, or a book that has a hope that certain wrongs in our being alive will be righted. It's a book in which things that have been hidden will be revealed and seen, finally. So that's my introduction to today's Spirit Flicks message, the series we do here at Wellsprings in the summer about movies and their connection to spiritual wisdom. I imagine a number of you have seen today's movie or at least heard or read about it, Hidden Figures. It has a double meaning if you've seen the movie or read about it. The double meaning is at the one time the hidden mathematical figures that these three NASA computer scientists helped to bring to the fore, particularly one, Katherine Johnson, that helped aid in the success of the early space race age the NASA Mercury mission. And of course, there's that second meaning of hiddenness. I wasn't taught about them in school. (laughs) I wasn't taught the role that Katherine Johnson and Dorothy Vaughn and Mary Jackson played in the early NASA launches and the success of the program. I imagine many of us were not taught about their contribution. And so the hiddenness is about them their lives, their contributions, the fact that they haven't been part of the official story, at least until now. This is what the workplace looked like for Katherine Johnson. (laughs) Some of you, by the way, may have been in circumstances like this or may still be in circumstances like this. To be the only one by race or gender or gender expression or sexual orientation. To be the only one. And what we see in the movie is that these three women have to work harder and smarter and put up with all kinds of crap to be able to do their jobs and live their lives. They are misinterpreted and overlooked, 
and because this is a big Hollywood movie that likes to tell a hopeful story, and it is a hopeful story, until the end, when especially Katherine Johnson, the merits of her work are finally recognized. Now, of course, this is not a story that ended 50 years ago. This is still here, these dynamics. And especially those of us with white skin or those of us who are part of dominant groups within this culture, if we listen, if we choose to listen, we will hear these stories still happening in our midst. People being overlooked, people not being seen for the contributions they are making. I mean, just for example, I don't even want to begin telling you. Now, Reverend Lee's not here today, and I'm not speaking for her, but this is the truth. I cannot tell you the number of still, in this day and age, female colleagues of mine who have to receive comments. I'm not talking about here at Wellsprings. I'm talking about throughout our movement. Who have to receive comments upon their appearance, upon their dress, about how they present themselves that us male colleagues, we don't have to receive. This stuff still goes on. Now, for many of you, this isn't news at all. But to remember this, a person like me takes an act of remaining open. Remembering my or our hidden challenges in not overlooking and not misrepresenting. My or our hidden biases. The defaultness that so often is whiteness. I want to show you something right now. And this comes out of our Atlanta UU congregation. A church, by the way, that Martin Luther King spoke at back in the 1960s. And they are really proud of this. <laughs> they have a plaque. And, and again, it's, it's an amazing thing that Dr. King chose to form partnership with this community. I know not all of you can read this, but the context of this is that the uh, UU congregation in Atlanta, the large UU congregation there, is moving. And they wanted to do a survey about the preferences of their people about where they would move to next. And so they asked the questions, extremely desirable all the way to extremely desirable. Would you choose to be near Asian American households, near low-income households, within walking distance from a MARTA station, near young adults, near African American households, near Hispanic Latino households? When people talk about centering or focusing exclusively or explicitly on the needs of white people first. They're talking about things like this. By the way, in a lot of urban environments, that, that's code. Like near a, a subway stop or a train stop, are we near others? Now, at best, the most generous interpretation I can come up with this is that it's a whole bunch of unconscious bias of who counts and who doesn't. And the UU Church in Atlanta is like most congregations, UU congregations, like Wellsprings, majority but not exclusively white, Anglo. And so that's my best interpretation of this, is that they just weren't clear. The worst interpretation we can come up with is that this data will be proved and used that we don't want to be near those people. Now, this came to light a number of months ago as we have wrestled within our tradition 
this progressive spiritual tradition that wants to be on the side of liberation and freedom for all people. And still, this stuff sneaks in. i got to give the leaders of the U Church of Atlanta some credit. When this came to light, and voices within that community, people of color who felt deeply marginalized by this, that their perspective wasn't as UU as other UUs in that community was. The leaders apologized. They promised to do better. They offered no excuses. They did not minimize people who were hurt and felt marginalized. And I'm going to ask you, promise me, let's promise each other. If we at Wellsprings ever, and by the way, we're, we're like, as far as I know, there's no plans to move at all. <laughs> but if we ever <laughs> have a plan to move and we want to find out what our perspectives are, please, let's not do this. <laughs> let's do something better. Let's engage in a conversation that's missional about not who we are called to be away from or toward, but who are we called to be? Because that is the kind of conversation and dialogue and discernment that should drive these kinds of conversations. Let's never do this. Our tradition says that revelation is unsealed. As we say here at Wellsprings, the burning bush is blazing everywhere. Wisdom is not sealed up in a single book or a single text or a single tradition. It is ongoing. Sounds great, doesn't it? The challenge is how do we do that? How do we live that? If revelation is actually something in our midst right now, that means it's something we're participating in. We're a part of it. I think that the two core categories, if we really want to read and write from the open book of Revelation, are humility and wonder. Wonder which opens us up to this world that is always ongoing and forming, and humility that simply rests in this awareness of being people who don't know it all, and being people who are capable of being surprised. How do we do this? How do we participate in the open book of Revelation? Well, I'm going to offer you a story right here, right now, that is about how not to do it. <laughs> that is about some of the hidden biases that still exist within Unitarian Universalism. I love this tradition, but I am not, well, if you've been around for a while, you know I'm not afraid of doing this. I am not afraid of calling us out. In fact, this is the way we make the most change, is by looking at who we are and what our tradition is and when we don't live up to it. A number of years ago, in the Tampa Unitarian Universalist congregation, there was a horrendous crime and people associated with that spiritual community. There was a man and a woman who had been married at one point, and they split up, and uh, the woman found herself in a relationship with another woman. And the children from that first marriage, that relationship I just referenced, were living with these two women. The man who I just mentioned went to their house, killed them all in a fit of homophobic rage, and killed himself. This is not an uncommon story. The part I want to focus on specifically is that, of course, this was traumatic, heartbreaking to the people of the UU congregation of Tampa. 
one person was interviewed about what it meant to them. And he opened his remarks by saying this. I don't understand how someone so well-educated could do something like this. See, the guy who committed this heinous crime and took his own life was an engineer. I don't understand how someone so well-educated could do this. The ongoing and open book of Revelation has nothing at all to do with how much facts or knowledge we have. Knowledge and wisdom are two different things. I love knowledge. I love picking it up like I love breathing. (laughs) But it doesn't in and of itself make me or any of us more whole. Revelation, in an ongoing way, involves a fundamental openness to this life. A willingness to be involved and to see our lives bound to other people's lives. No matter how educated we are or not. When I think of someone who's been able to traverse this journey between associating themselves with what they know and really becoming a a full-on human being, almost a a mensch, to quote my ancestors, I think of this character. I am a Game of Thrones fan, and that's Tyrion Lannister. And yes, he says at one point, that's what I do. I drink and I know things. Could have said that at one point in my life. Now I don't drink. And the truth is, I didn't know that many things back then either. Tyrion Lannister, who is a member of, I'm not going to go into all of the dragons, and, but let's just say Westeros, he's a member of one of the most cruel and vicious houses, families that hold power within this society. Tyrion Lannister, who comes across as someone who knows the underside just a little bit of that culture because he is a dwarf, he is a little person, and he is looked down upon as someone who is less than because he is shorter. Tyrion Lannister, who grows in his role in the course of this story to actually not just be someone who drinks and know things anymore, but someone who allows himself to be touched in a very personal way by the injustice and suffering of his culture, and so because of it becomes a part, or at least as we move towards the end of Game of Thrones, this is what we think, becomes a part of a new revelation coming to be. A participation in deeper healing, deeper love, and deeper justice. Sometimes the more education we have can be the greater excuse that we offer for our cynicism. We're being world-weary and thinking we know it all and then not allowing ourselves to be surprised. This release of what we think we know to become less attached to a particular view or dogmatic belief is to be fundamentally more open to falling in love with this life. This is something I know from conversations with a number of you this past week that some of us are wrestling with. Many of us know, and you can see it written in your printed order of service, that very recently a member of this congregation died. Someone we lost to the opioid epidemic. Donya Icorn. We miss her and it is heartbreaking. 
And what I've heard from a whole bunch of folks this past week is, I knew the opioid epidemic was out there. But I didn't feel it for the first time that it's in here. And it's a part of us. This is the moment when we can choose to open to the pain of the world. Open to a larger compassion. Thinking that in fact there is so much we don't know. And that the deeper task is in that gap between what we don't know to grow into who and what we can love. Humility and wonder. Which brings me back to the movie and the scene that got a lot of notice. Scene where Kevin Costner (laughs) plays the hero and takes a crowbar to the colored ladies' restroom that Catherine has been walking back and forth for a half hour to be able just to go to the bathroom in the early 1960s during this time of the space race. And finally, when he learns the truth, he takes in his hands, he takes a crowbar, and he smashes it, and equality is won. (laughs) It didn't happen. (laughs) You know, the real story is that Catherine knew there were segregated restrooms, and she made the choice herself, her own agency, to say, I'm going to the closest restroom I can, because that's how I can best take care of myself and do my job. It didn't require a white savior. (laughs) But you you know that story, you know that trope shows up all the times. I mean, when this happened, and I really like this movie, because primarily it is centered on the lives of these three women. But when I saw this scene, I'm like, oh God, we're like veering into the health category here, aren't we? (laughs) That's the white savior thing. There are stories that supposedly are about people who are not often centered in this society becomes a story about people who are already centered. And I also want to be generous with this interpretation. Whitewashing history, no time for it. Feel good historical amnesia, no time for it. The only purpose that a scene like this has that is beneficial is to ask us, especially those of us who have dominant identities within this culture, what would we do now? Not then, to feel good about it, what would we do now? Because this is the truth of our tradition. As many teachers have said, that we're not the religion about, about facts, about scriptures. We're a religion and a spirituality of. That if we say we believe in love and in justice, that the clearest testimony to that are the acts of our own lives. That this is what matters. What are we, what am I, what are you called to do to participate in the open book of Revelation And yes, of course, so many of us know this is a time of chaos, of overturning, and also of opportunity, of showing and revealing what had previously been hidden for a very long time, and some parts of our culture just want to imagine we could go back. (laughs) That nostalgia is a good thing. But I also remember the words of a great preacher in the 1960s, did a lot of ministry with young people in the time of the civil rights movement. 
in the Vietnam War. And they would come in having lost all of their illusions about what American culture was. And he would take a long drag off his pipe. And he would say, the only reason you're disillusioned is because you had illusions in the first place. <laughs> he wasn't being cruel. He was just saying, now is the time to wake up. We can regress, we can be de-evolutionary, or we can grow up. We can see it all throughout our culture in so many ways. The diseases of stress that are afflicting people who in this culture for a long time had a lot of power. Addictions and diabetes, pulmonary diseases. This is an evolutionary moment for our culture. A chance to evolve. A chance to join the fullness of our humanity. And so, as I said before, I don't often go to the book of Revelation for inspiration. But there's something that points at the wisdom in this book that I do love. And it's from the Gospel of Thomas, which is one of those books that seemingly didn't really have a power agenda other than overturning things entirely, and so it didn't make it into the actual scriptures. The Gospel of Thomas offers all of us a choice, individually and institutionally, with this question. If you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will condemn you. That's a bracing question. That's the question that asks, are we part of the open book of Revelation? And maybe for some of us right now, that is a really individualized question. <laughs> Am I bringing forth what is within me that needs no longer to be hidden, that needs revelation, that needs to be revealed, that needs to be shared and healed and nurtured? Or am I tamping it down? But it's not just a question for individuals. It's a question for a whole culture. And so may we all have the courage, the conviction, the strength to continue to bring forth what is within us. If we do it, we will surely surely know a larger love. And yes, even that word that sounds a little weird coming out of my mouth, we will be saved. Not for some other place and some other time, but for right here and right now, which is the only place we can heal. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Divine who calls us not to the comfortable or even the known road, but to the fullness and the complexity of right here, right now. Because the core question in our movement is not, were you there back then or where are you going to be someday? It's not reading the signs and the tea leaves so that we can secure our place in whatever place we might want to get to or to be assured that back then it was all okay rather than now and it's chaos. But no, the deeper question is, am I here? Are we here? Are we practicing that deliberate, intentional perception that allows us to see and know our own hearts and to call forth what is still being birthed and allows us to be midwives for the birth that is happening in the context of our larger culture and society so that we may know that we are not the religion about peace or justice. We are all to the best of our ability of people practicing a spirituality of peace and justice. 
because this is what the world needs. Amen.